Please listen carefully. V production. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. And I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm just the blind guy who decided to do a podcast. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. It was devastating, and if it isn't, you're probably in some stage of denial. I don't know how to interview people, right? I'm just like a professor. Oh my god, you're a mother and you're blind. I think that has a really big impact when it comes to blindness. I was finding myself thinking in a way and planning in a way that I thought was not good for my soul. This was true soul searching, and it led today's guest to a life-changing decision. Because I've had this kind of uh, um, sometimes confused uh, and confusing relationship with being blind. In this episode of Dangerous Vision, Randy Cohen talks with Cyrus Habib, Lieutenant Governor of Washington. Um, so this is the part where you tell me about that, and then I, I try to talk you out of it. So, David, you, are you recording? We're recording. All right, everything's good. Um, all right, so I'll just clear my head for a few seconds. Welcome to the Dangerous Vision podcast. So we're so happy uh, to be joined today by uh, Cyrus Habib, the Lieutenant Governor of uh, Washington. When Frank Bruni's article about you appeared, uh, lots of people sent it to me and were like, you've got to interview this guy. Look, he's blind. He's interesting. You know, that's what you want for the Dangerous Vision uh, podcast. But the real uh, kicker was when my brother, uh, who actually, my brother's a, a history professor at Syracuse, and, and he likes to research things, uh, poked in a little to your background and saw that uh, that you were a parliamentary debater from uh, Columbia, where he also uh, went to school. And uh, then we knew that that uh, we really had to, had to talk because um, uh, my experience is that uh, just as um, ex-football players uh, really care about football, uh, ex-parliamentary debaters like me, and I'm going to guess you, uh, really care about parliamentary debate. I do. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I wasn't as deep in it as mm-hmm. some people. A lot of people do parliamentary debate or parley, as they call it, mm-hmm. um, make it their kind of their whole lives in college. And um, I was reasonably serious about it for during my freshman and part of my sophomore uh, years, but I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of, um, you know, I think with that sort of thing, you, you really, in order to, you, you can be kind of, um, good or you could be great. And in order to be great, there, there's, there's just a, um, there's an extraordinary Delta in the amount of work that you have to put in. Right. Um, if you want to take that next step, uh, to be, uh, an, an amazing debater. And, um, you know, what's, what's, uh, kind of interesting or small worldish about the world of parliamentary debate is that, uh, Ted Cruz, you know, was, uh, was, was in the parliamentary debate circuit. I mean, everybody kind of mm-hmm. knows each other. Believe me, I was um, going to go, I was going to go straight to Ted from here. So oh, you go were gonna go to Ted Cruz? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so he was, so I'm younger than he is. Yes. And um, I'm a little so older, we, but yeah, we, we, we didn't overlap. Uh, but plenty of people that I know through debate knew him, uh, yeah. through debate and, um, you can, you know, whatever else we might say about Ted Cruz, you can totally tell that he's a great debater and, mm. and, um, you can tell that he has that training. 
I, I, it's, uh, so, so my, uh, what happened with me and Ted is I, uh, am a few years older and Ted four or five years older. And, um, so what happened was though, that after I graduated, uh, my, my brother, who I just mentioned was three years younger than me and he was still debating for Columbia. And I had lots of friends on the debate circuit and, um, I was working at a, at a job in Boston that had a fair amount of flexibility. I was sort of running a, a small business. And, and, uh, so I, uh, basically started coaching, uh, the Harvard team. And then later when I moved to Philadelphia, Philadelphia for work, I um, I coached Penn's team. And so I went to debate tournaments on the weekends because it gave me an opportunity to see uh, my brother and also my uh, then girlfriend, now wife was on the on the debate circuit at the time and uh, and so forth. And um, so uh, so Ted became a star debater, um, you know, shortly after my graduation. But during this time when I was coaching, and especially I was coaching at, at Penn, of course, Penn and Princeton would be at, you know, all the same tournaments and, and there was yeah. something of a rivalry there and so forth. Um, and, uh, and you know, w- w- the, a funny thing about Ted, a friend of mine just told me recently who uh, works in, in uh, Washington, uh, he said, you know, it's really amazing. But all these years later, Pe- Ted really doesn't care about power. He doesn't care about policy. He just wants to give speeches and have people pay attention to him and everything else is in pursuit of that. And I know that if I told most people that, they would think I was crazy. But believe me, if I were in politics, that's why I would be doing it. And instead, I'm a professor, which, you know, I have a smaller audience, but and a podcaster, right? I, I just want to give speeches and have people pay attention. So yeah. I totally know where Ted's coming from. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that the, the, the positive version of that or the, you know, the positive spin on that is to say, I, I think that what debate does is uh trains the mind to um to to kind of remove emotion from a particular uh, uh topic and be able to dispassionately or passionately but 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 in, in a kind of contrived way um you know make the best form of whatever the argument is and if you right. if you get good at it it will help you to form a kind of intellectual empathy where you will uh, in your mind make the best form of the argument of your interlocutor or of, of, you know, of the other side, even if they're not making the best form of the argument. Right. Um, You know, that can be, you know, if, um, if done uncritically can lead to a kind of relativism that I think is unhealthy, but I, but I think is uh, there is a, there is a, through line to empathy there, uh, at least intellectual empathy, if, uh, if done, if done in, in, uh, moderation, you know, I have to kind of now, uh, unprogram some of that. I've been trying to do this because I think it can be, it's a form of intellectual pride and it's, and and it's also kind of a cheap move, you Mm know, um, so it's, it's definitely important skills. And I always tell young people who say like, I want to go into politics. What do I do? Or even I want to be a lawyer. What do I do? And I always say do debate. Yeah. The, um, you know? so, so, you know, you've mentioned that you're leaving politics. Obviously it's, it's, uh, much talked about your decision to, uh, uh, pursue, uh, to pursue a vocation in the priesthood. Um, so this is the part where you tell me about that and then I, I try to talk you out of it. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm, I'm going to put those parliamentary debate skills to use. Oh no, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, but, but, uh, I'll have to put mine to use as well. I, uh, you know, I have, um, yeah, I'm leaving uh, uh, public office, elected office uh, at the end of the year. I'm entering the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits. 
Um, and uh, I'm going to begin what uh, will, uh, if, I, if, if I'm successful in it, if it's the right thing, will be probably about a 10-year uh, process of uh, uh, formation to, the, um, to, to be ordained to the Catholic priesthood. So that's, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a huge decision. There are many factors that went into it. But, um, and I can, and I can talk about those, but I guess what I should say above all is that, you know, you, you have, uh, you have kids, right? Did you, did you, I say do. That? you have kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like the decision to get married or to have kids, um, at, at the end of the day, it's a calling, it's a vocation, uh, to be a parent is a vocation, uh, to be a spouse is a vocation. Um, to be in religious life is a vocation. And, you know, I think if, if, if I were to ask you, you know, why do you, why, why did you want to get married? Not why do you want to get married to the person you're married to, mm-hmm. but why did you want to be a married person, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, why did you want to be a parent? You know, uh, you know, you might give me some answers that are kind of intellectual, but at the, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a feeling you have. It's a desire mm-hmm. you have. It's a, it's a, it's an attraction of the heart. And so, um, that's how I feel, you know, mm-hmm. is that it, this is something that, um, that attracts me. Um, and it, and it began, um, a few years ago when, um, I read a book in 2013 called the Jesuit guide to almost everything by James Martin um, who's a Jesuit priest, um, and is, um, you know, s- some folks might remember him as the official chaplain of the Colbert report. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's a, you know, he's, he's kind of a media, uh, uh, figure. Uh, and, uh, so he wrote this book and I, I never, you know, I, I, the way he talks about Ignatian spirituality, which is the, the spirituality of St. Ignatius, the founder of the mm-hmm. Jesuits, the way he talks about um, Ignatian spirituality and um, you know Jesuit uh, principles is by describing his. Uh, he tells a lot of stories from his life as a Jesuit, particularly from his his years in formation as a novice, as a scholastic, as a philosophy and, the- and theology student. Um, and as I was reading that, it just kind of was attractive to me. You know, I was like, wow, you know, in the way that you read something and you don't consciously think I want to do that, but it's just cool. You know, you're just Mm -hmm. interested in it. You're like, wow, that would be, that's wow. He was in Kenya helping, um, you know, uh, 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 men and women, primarily I think women, um, in this village, you know, start their own businesses, um, refugees, um, who were, who were there, let's say from, um, uh, Ethiopia you know, start, uh, their own enter- business enterprises. And I'm like, wow, that would be what a fascinating thing to do. Or he was, um, working in a media ministry at America magazine. And so, so that's when it was kind of in my mind, uh, I, I'd never thought about, it. I didn't really know what a Jesuit was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, but then, but I didn't think about it for me. And, and, you know, you asked in, in your first question, you know, how did I move so quickly and so on? And that's true. I did move quickly. So I was kind of always running for office between 2011, uh, when I first started thinking about running for the house in a serious way, um, all the way till 2017, when I, you know, was sworn in as Lieutenant governor, I was pretty much always running for office. 
Um, and so, so I didn't have time or opportunity to think about something different. It also, you know, there was a lot of positive um, reinforcement of my role in politics. You know, I kept winning higher office mm -hmm. um, and people kept, you know, dangling in front of me this idea of, well, you know, you can keep moving up. And even now, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Frank Bruni and others, you know, kind of focused on this, yeah. you know, um, there's a, a not insignificant chance that whoever is uh, elected lieutenant governor this November will accede to the governorship next year um, if Jay Inslee takes a cabinet position. I mean, right. if he does, then for sure they will be the governor. Mm -hmm. uh, but right. that's, uh, you know, obviously would require uh, a few uh, yeah. conditions. So, exactly. so, so people got to dangle those things. And so it was always like, okay, this is great. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and I should just keep doing politics. Then what happened was my father um, passed away in 2016 of cancer. I, I had some, um, I had a healthcare um, a crisis of my own that thankfully got better, but that was very frightening. And, you know, through, and, and, then, and then with the election of Trump and what began to happen to politics in our country in a more pronounced way, all of that led me to both a kind of a recognition that politics was um, uh, a kind of an increasingly toxic force in my own personal life. In other words, I was finding myself thinking in a way and planning in a way that I thought was not good for my soul. You know, it was, it was, I was, I'd become obsessed with um, my own status in politics and what was going to come next. And I'd kind of bought into this idea of the celebrity politician. And I found myself kind of being drawn into that world and, you know, you know, uh, meeting with a, a literary agent, writing a book and all that. And so, so I, that was the first thing was that I started to feel through noticing, through the practices of Ignatian spirituality, noticing in prayer, in contemplation, what, where I felt grace in my day and where I didn't find it, I started to feel um, a sense of desolation associated with politics. And then at the same time, I started to notice um, the joy and the fulfillment and um, the kind of sense of purpose um, in, I started to notice that in people of faith who had given their lives to a religious vocation. And, um, you know, most notable of whom was not a Catholic is, was the Dalai Lama who I got to meet and have, um, one-on-one -on -one conversations with on two different occasions in India these past couple of years as Lieutenant governor. So, so all of that kind of led me to a moment of pause and a moment of, um, discernment, a real deep discernment. And, uh, and, and as much as I thought, well, that, this is crazy. This idea is crazy what I'm thinking about, but it kept kind of coming back. And, you know, we are trained in the Ignatian tradition to, to notice when something keeps coming back and to try to interrogate and, and open that up. And, uh, and so there came a point where I could no longer dismiss it and I had to take it more seriously. And as I did that, then, um, became even more, uh, attractive to me, uh, to the point that I went down 
to the novitiate and uh, visited as a, as a candidate and got to see how they live and then uh, applied for admission and was, was admitted. You want to share anything either, uh, something about um, how blindness has, has uh, affected you as you've gone through either the political part or your, or your decision to head towards the priesthood or anything like that. Or if you want to go a different direction, tell us some tics, tips and tricks and technologies uh, that you use to be as effective as you are uh, despite lo- sight loss. You know, I became blind as a kid due to cancer. Um, and um, my young parents are faced with this devastating news that their son has cancer. Um, and yet they um, somehow, somehow had this deep conviction that um, they could not allow their fear uh, to translate into my fear, um, that they wanted me to uh, believe in my own potential fully and that they were willing. And my mom went to law school and, and, and taught herself and then taught me how to be an advocate. Um, and there's something so powerful about that. Um, but, and, and, and so this is where I think it's my, I've grown in, 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 I think matured in how I view this is that, um, I wouldn't trade that for anything right now. I think that is what allowed me to uh, travel the road from Braille to Yale mm-hmm. um, that I talk about. But um, taken to an extreme, that mentality of projecting strength and capability, ability, you know, uh, uh, power, um, all of that, taken to an extreme, it can um, leave no room for, uh, and I will say in, you know, from my perspective, it leaves no room for God. Um, but you might also say leaves no room to recognize one's own fragility, one's own, um, status as a contingent being contingent on the world contingent. If you, if you're a believer contingent on God. And what that meant was that later in life, when I got, when I, when I, when I got older, um, and I confronted things like my father's diagnosis, like my own illness, um, you know, like a a really, um, devastating political situation like COVID-19, whatever, you know, when facing these things, um, the, the training and the instinct has become, you know, well, I'll just, you know, litigate my way through it, or I will, um, push and fight and battle. And, you know, and you see this a lot in political rhetoric, the language that you use is, is much more militant. And, you know, than if you are say Joe Biden mm-hmm. or whatever, where you may have the luxury of never having had anyone question your ability to battle or to fight or, or whatever. But here's the thing is that, that I know this, Joe Biden knows this and, and others learn this. Everyone learns this eventually is that you come you, you, you encounter things that you can't defeat that way. Mm-hmm. And this relates kind of to our point about what are the things that you can do in politics, even if the political system was more functional than it is now, and what are the things that you can't do that way? So, so then confronting my own vulnerability, my own fragility, 
recognizing that we are all born weak, we all die weak, and we, and we spend every living moment uh, seemingly in between trying to convince ourselves and others that we are not. <laughs> um, that's been a realization that I've come to. Um, and it's changed the way I think that I view blindness, which is that um, I went from feeling that blindness was um, the, you know, something to be completely re- suppressed in myself, the, I, the very notion of that, um, to, an idea, to, to the idea that um, it's, it's okay to, to acknowledge and, in fact, perhaps, to, you know, even to grieve the loss of eyesight mm-hmm. that, you know, rather than either saying, I'm going to pretend it's, it's, it's not the case or to go to the other extreme and to say, you know what? Um, blindness is who I am. Um, I have blind pride or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like rather than do either of those things, just say, you know what? I'm not defined by this. And it is something that happened, but it's also, it, it, it's not nothing, yeah. you know, it's not irrelevant. It is, it's a, it's a profound sadness to not be able, you know, for you to not be able to, uh, gaze upon a child, your child, you know, that's a profound sadness. We don't need to, um, you know, we, we don't need to kind of, um, elide that fact, um, in order to recognize our own full dignity, um, as human beings. And, and, and so that's been a, a real evolution in my thinking um, over, over these years. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I agree with that. And I think, you know, one of the things, may, you know, that's maybe a small, uh, a small compensation for, for having a, a sort of um, easy to recognize disability like blindness or being in a wheelchair or whatever is, is that people tend to be very open about talking about their challenges, you know, because they know and, and, uh, and you, you kind of quickly discover like, you know, everybody's got something, you know, everybody has, has yeah. things they have to deal with. And, uh, you know, many people are fortunate enough that they don't have an individual thing that's as difficult to deal with as blindness, but a, uh, many people absolutely do all the time. I talk to people and they talk about an issue that they have in their lives. And I think, yeah, I don't think I, you know, take that one on, you know, if I, if it would enable me to see, and then B, of course, there's people who might not have any one thing, but they may have a, uh, a, a pile of things. Anytime I have any physical illness, I'm, uh, my immediate reaction is, no, that's not fair. I'm blind. I, I, I gave it the office, right? Like I've got my big negative thing. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have other things. <laughs> one other thing I want to say, um, only uh, distantly related to that about blindness is uh, that um, because I've had this kind of uh, um, sometimes confused uh, and confusing relationship with being blind. Um, it's also meant that I never really knew other blind people. Um, I didn't have blind friends. I, you know, I didn't go to a blind school. Um, and, um, I didn't have mentors who were blind until, uh, last year when I got to know someone and I want to mention him because he, um, is a product of a great Massachusetts Massachusetts Jesuit Institution, Boston College, Eric Weinmayer. Have you had him on the show? Uh, I haven't, but um, okay. I have, uh, but we talked about him as somebody we'd love to okay. get. You should have him on the show. Yeah. You, he um, will be far better than I am uh, as an interview subject. He is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Eric Weinmayer 
I got to meet um, through uh, through through friends, and um, he inspired me tremendously mm. because uh, I'm not an outdoorsy person. Yeah. So for your listeners, yeah, Eric Weinmayer. Yeah, Eric Weinmayer's a, a, a blind guy who um, has summited uh, Everest, but in fact, he summited all seven summits, the, the, the tallest summit on each continent. So Denali and Aconcagua and Kilimanjaro, et cetera, um, as well as a lot of other crazy physical feats. Uh, El Capitan, um, he's, he's river rafted in the, the, the entire Grand Canyon and so on. So he is, um, he's, he's, he's one of the, the, the top, um, you know, uh, outdoorsmen in the world, blind or not blind, blind or sighted. Um, and so I got to know him and it kind of forced me to think about, am I pushing myself, um, in a way that is actually challenging to me? Um, and I wanted to start this, this program for kids with disabilities to go outdoors and to have a, kind of an outdoor leadership program for kids with disabilities. And it occurred to me that if I wanted to, to ask young people with disabilities to push themselves, that it had been an awfully long time since I'd done that. So as a result of those two things, being inspired by Eric and then um, this desire to do this, this uh, start this program, I ended up climbing Kilimanjaro um, this last September. And um, before I did that, Eric came out to Washington State. He lived in Colorado, and he uh, taught me how to be uh, how how you know how he does it, how he uh, navigates uh, the mountain with trekking poles and is able to uh, to climb on his own. And so, um, for the first time, I had a blind mentor, uh, and it was a really powerful experience for me. And it made me realize how much I'd shied away from that how much I didn't want to um, associate myself with blindness um, and, you know, how many, you know, kind of demons I had around that myself. And so it was, uh, you know, the mountain is a, is a, is a place where you inevitably face really hard truths. And, um, and so for me, when I was climbing Kilimanjaro, I ended up getting bronchitis and almost didn't make it to the top. Um, and I did eventually, I mean, I did summit, but, on the during those final few hours that were so difficult, it got to the point where um, I was, you know, I, I had to stop and uh, was double over panting and wheezing uh, like every 10 steps. And I thought, you know, should I just turn around? And, you know, I would think that all the time. And then I kept thinking to myself, if I do that, no one will ever believe that it's because of the bronchitis. They'll always assume it was because I was blind. Um, and then I know a lot of blind people feel a lot of people of all different identities feel that, that their actions reflect on a whole community. But I was, I just wanted to share all that by way of saying, um, if you are somebody who is listening to this and, um, you know, you have some kind of a struggle in some, one way or another, um, related to being blind or, you know, or perhaps not related to something else. Um, it is tremendously powerful to find the right person. Um, and, and, you know, you should try to use the, the networks and relationships that are there to find a great person to be a mentor. And you should also try to be a mentor for other people. And that, that is what I came out of that with, with this understanding of, I need to do more with young people who are blind. And that I've had a kind of aversion, both to finding a mentor and being a mentor to blind people. 
So, so as I take this next step, it's certainly something that I want to um, to to center in my ministry. But I also want to mention um, "Far from the Tree" by Andrew Solomon, okay, um, which is an amazing book. It's had a, it's a huge influence in how I think about identity. It's about um, parenting, and it's about um, the relationship between parents and children in those instances where the children are fruit that has fallen far from the tree, meaning they have an identity that is different from the identity of their parent. They have a horizontal rather than a vertical identity that society recognizes. So, um, so not race, for example, right. Or not religion, which tends to, to be passed down, Mm -hmm. but, um, but, but disability in many cases, um, uh, mental health to, you know, schizophrenia, um, uh, being the child, uh, of, uh, rape, Mm. um, and, um, you know, many, but, 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 but largely it's many different types of disability. Um, he has a chapter on down syndrome, a chapter on autism, a chapter on, uh, deafness, a chapter on dwarfism. So what, what is so powerful about the book is which which relates to kind of what I was just talking about is it it teases out the tension between illness and identity. Do you view disability as an illness or as an identity? Um, and I have um, I have fluctuated between those two, and so um, so I really highly recommend it to people. Um, Andrew Solomon, Far From the Tree probably a decade old. It's really long, but it has tremendously well-researched chapters um, that, uh, that you can read in any order and re- especially um, find the ones that, re- that, that relate to your interests. So highly recommend it. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. And I guess for mine, I'll just say I already mentioned Tracy Kidder and his book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. Uh, his book, um, Soul of the New Machine, which is from way back in the 80s, but I reread it recently. And it's still fantastic about uh, building a new mini computer um, in the early days of the computer revolution. Uh, I think it won a Pulitzer Prize. Incredible book. And uh, maybe my all-time favorite of his is a book called House, which is just about a group of carpenters building a house and everything that it took and uh, and dealing with the architect and dealing with the homeowners and negotiations and cutting wood and uh, just, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of life in a house and it's just, uh, it's I, I find it just absolutely mesmerizing. I reread it maybe 30 years after it came out and enjoyed it just as much uh, the second time. So, uh, so much, so much good stuff out there. Do you use Bookshare to read books or Audible or how do you, how do you get Not them? Yeah, but I'm, I'm now, as I, as I am planning for going back to school, mm-hmm. Uh, I am uh, getting an account, so yeah. I'm going to do that. It's, uh, it's incredible. If you if you need any tips on the best tools, uh, I, I a I have the website dangerousvision.com, the website that goes with this podcast. I actually go through just very simply, just like the ten tools that I use. Uh, but in particular, on the book reading, voice dream reader, and bookshare, just email me because um, okay. I actually have a love lot. To. To, like I could, it could save you hours of pain if if I just give you a few tips. Love to. The best way to re- to read Thank books. You. Um, and, and if for everybody else out there, dangerousvision.com, we've got great tips or you, you can all email me. I don't care. Any, anybody can email me. I'll be happy. If you write to me and say, I'm blind and I need help figuring out how to read books. I promise you, I will write you back. So, uh, all right. Well, Cyrus, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and I'm really excited to do it again. So, uh, we'll, we'll reach out. Maybe we'll get you right after your, your term ends, but before they, uh, the Jesuits have you, uh, sweeping floors and, and so forth, we'll get you, we'll get you, uh, in there for, for another uh, podcast. This has been a delight. Thank nice. you so much. Thanks so much. 
You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.